Hi, this is Megan Davis, and you're listening to Stories Create Me, a podcast that explores the stories that we tell that make up our present day and eventually are going to influence our future. Each month, I explore a topic with a special guest. The topic varies, but the sentiment is always the same. The stories we tell become our future. And so, won't you join us as this narrative unfolds? My name's Steve Vallis. At the moment, I'm a blockchain person, which is something I say to people happily because I've been ensconced in the blockchain space the last uh, year and a half or so. But when I talk about who I am normally, I usually contextualise it for people because most people think they already know who you are according to the qualification you bring. But blockchain is what I spend most of my time doing now. Mm. I've relatively recently moved out of digital strategy and sort of business advisory work, which is what I've been doing for the last five or six years. But the reason I've gravitated into blockchain is because it's really hard and most people stop trying to figure it out very quickly. Mm. And I like the fact that it's difficult and that most people give it away before they've taken the time to understand it. So I spend most of my time now in rooms trying to help people form strategies around what a blockchain project might look like for them, Mm -hmm. whether they're very early stage and they just need the panel beating advice that says your resources will work or won't work, Mm -hmm. or whether at the other end where they're relatively well formed and ready to tell the market what they're going to do, sometimes people miss a lot of steps in between. So I think I've had some success in identifying where they might be a little bit deficient before they go to market. Okay. And so in this brave new world of blockchain, one of the things that I've, I've listened to you speak previously, and I was at Nab Village when you were speaking there. And one of the things that I took away from that talk was this idea of the death of the middleman. And what I find so interesting about that is that in the past, in like, let's go back 200, 400 years ago, the middleman was a very rare thing that most people knew the people that they're interacting with either through family ties or relationships because they lived very close to each other and they had close contact and so when they made a deal they pretty much just had a conversation and decided we're going to do this and this is what we're going to do and this is what everyone's role is and what's really interesting about if we project what blockchain is enabling people to do it's putting trust into a system and it's removing a lot of checks and balances that people used to be employed or are currently employed to do to provide to put trust into a system and so we're kind of going into a future that might more closely resemble a past that we are comfortable with and in a localized way it does but i think the exciting promise of the tech says you can scale the thing that you valued most in a localized setting in a global setting because what it does is it takes trust out of the equation in so much as you no longer need the individual to record it you no longer need that face-to-face interaction but what you do ultimately have is a record of what that trust keeper was usually employed to do so it's the boring version of what is blockchain. Blockchain is just record keeping. Mm. It's then depending on who asks, it various sort of degrees. And I always say to people, you need to contextualise, you know, who's asking. But at its core, it's the record keeping element, and it's effectively the record of the relationship that uh, that's being stored. The technology in this instance allows you to eliminate the person that sits in between. But fundamentally, the only reason they sat there was, as you've noted, to say, "This is what you promised." this is what you did. So trust is built into the technology, which means that it can be cross-border, it can be local, it can be in industries where there are many, many people that sort of put themselves between the start of the process and the end of the process. So it is the local version of the thing you've described, Mm. but the exciting part says, yeah, cross-border. Can you do this across the other side of the world and not have the concern that someone is promising you something and there is no record to establish whether or not they, uh, they provided the service or the outcome that they wanted. Mm. And if we keep projecting into this future, this future of, well, this is an ancient reference, but the Greeks, justice was blind. Yep. You know, and, I, and I, that is another thing. This is a bit of imagery that comes into my mind that we can kind of enter into a space where justice in this very idealized context can become blind. And the checks and balances, the weight that she's holding, she doesn't need to see it to ensure that it's 
Fair. Yep, and I think I was a lawyer a long time ago. That's part of my my backstory. Wow, this is an interesting, and, and interesting so, so, and, and, and I've got Greek heritage, so I've got Greek and uh, and uh, ex lawyer. <laughs> okay. And when I give people advice around legal arguments, generally I say best story wins. Mm. And people will often say, "Well, I'm telling the truth." I said, even when you're telling the truth, sometimes the best story wins, and sometimes it's not the truth because mm. inherently the assessment is is based on a ton of qualitative factors, how is the information delivered, how readily was it created, you know, whose version do we believe, were you inconsistent? It's, it's ultimately someone that sits across from you as the, as the sole determinant that says, I've heard both versions of your story mm. and I think story number A is more likely than story number B. And, you know, speaking to a friend of mine who's a, who's a barrister and he was talking about the fact that more often than not he's of the view that having done the reading of the material beforehand, a lot of the time judges have a pretty good idea who they think is going to win and then they wait to be proven wrong. So open-minded okay. going in there, but they've assessed material, they're not hearing it necessarily the first time. Mm. The, the, the blockchain sort of overlays into that process quality of data and quality of record-keeping and makes it easier then to determine did things happen when you told me they happened, did they happen in a sequence? It, you know, it provides sort of clues and markers that says ultimately here's where we've ended up. What can we see that came before this? that would give us an indication that version one or version two of the story is correct. So I think mm. it does come back much more to the blindness. These are impartial record-keeping opportunities potentially that say, when you said you are going to pay me, there it is. I see a record of that having happened. Mm. When, when we said this is what we agreed to in the contract, well, here's the contract and no opportunity was taken to change what we said and it functioned until you ran out of money. So it just gives people a, a rails run. Again, invariably, I talk to people about what happens when they're in dispute. And I've said, ultimately, people are usually not in dispute about a lot of things, mm. but it's the noise around those things that makes it very difficult to figure out what you're actually in dispute about. So mm -hmm. in the setting that is a, is where you're sitting down there and you're through a mediation and you're having an argument, generally everyone throws the kitchen sink at the argument and in the end there are probably three key things that made a difference. In mm. a blockchain-enabled world and in a smart contract-enabled world, it's a lot easier to say we can move away from the issues that aren't in dispute because here they are verified and no one had any issues with it until the relationship went sour. Mm. Here's where it went sour, so let's now look at what came before and what's still an issue. So I think the blindness of justice comes back because you think about some of the opportunities that are around things like employment. I like HR and employment mm. as a potential use case where we know there is a bias. You know, we don't want to hire men beyond a certain age, women under a certain age, people of particular ethnicity. Mm. How do you stop that from happening at the moment? Well, you take on face value that people say, they're not things that affect us. But if you have the capacity to blind reference people, if you have the technology effectively acting as the arbiter to a certain point in time without mm. saying, here is the colour of my skin, here is my age, you manage to get through these hurdles without having been excluded. So there's a greater likelihood than that person who is the most qualified is the one that ends up getting through. And that's mm. part of the tech that excites me. It's effectively blind messaging through the process to get through that bias stage until ultimately you say, well, we've got three candidates left. We don't know whether they're males or females. We mm. don't know how old they are. Mm. All we know is that the tech allows us to verify that they are the most qualified people by the criteria that we've set. Mm. And then the shroud can potentially come down and you say now, it's, yeah. a much, it's a much more difficult to say, yeah. we don't want that person because of the way they look or where they've come from or what their ancestry otherwise is. So that bit excites me. Yeah. And so this is an exciting future that we could potentially have ahead of us. And some of the overarching narratives that I'm, as a, you know, not an expert in any sense of the word, but interested bystander. And as I'm watching things unfold, a lot of the narratives that are dominant, let's say in the media and what, and what people are talking about blockchain is that it's some way to create wealth. So let's say through Bitcoin, but there's lots of secrecy and people can, you know, it's like the dark web, like people can move things around and no one knows what they're doing. Yeah. And it's all very secret. And, you know, how are we going to keep track of these people? And what I find really confusing about that is that it's actually privately public or publicly private. <laughs> so, so you, know? you just summarized the view of the world that is blockchain <laughs> described as a, as a single thing. And, and that's been part of the, the challenge. When you try to explain it to most people, mm. when people want an explanation, and I say this all the time, when people say, tell me in a, in a tweet what blockchain is. Mm. And it's like, okay, the Twitter version 
is not what blockchain is. It's a very generic description of what it is. Yeah. So as far as framing what blockchain is and then the elements that you've just tied in, public and private, uh, crypto or not crypto, the privacy that is personal privacy, dark web stock, all these things are components of mm. a wide variety of use cases for blockchain. But depending on who you're speaking to, everyone tends to mash them together because it seems like they all go together, but they don't. So mm. the spectrum that I've been telling people, think about it. One end, if you think about the Bitcoin end of the blockchain world, I characterize that a little bit more as it's the true believers space. It's the space that says most things should be decentralized. They should be they should be private. You should be able to have control over your own money. Mm. Government should not interfere with this, and I should be able to do what I want because I'm an individual and I have sovereign rights. Yeah. Now I'll come back to the issue of privacy and Bitcoin, but that's yeah. one view of the of, yeah. the of the blockchain space. Mm. At the other end of the spectrum, you've got large businesses that say, you know what, we own. This relationship, we have control over this data, we don't want to share it, but we like some of the elements that are associated with blockchain tech. We like being able to distribute this information. We like to share amongst the people that want to share it. We want records that make our business more efficient. They're at opposite ends of the spectrum. Mm. But depending on who's communicating it, it kind of sounds like the same story. We said distributed, fast, private, except distributed to what degree? Fast, how fast? Private, well, whose privacy are we talking about? And that's where this confusion continues to lie. So Mm -hmm. the Bitcoin world is the world that most people came to know of this space very quickly because someone was being told you can make a ton of money and you can make it really quickly and you're a genius and you're a financial expert and all you need to do is listen to what the friend in the next cubicle told you you should buy (laughs) and everyone was rich. My phone last year did not stop ringing. (laughs) What should I grab? How can I get in? What do I need to do? And I watched it from the ground as it took off and it became a very difficult thing to resist. Like I was sitting there thinking, I know this space really well and Mm. I'm not in the way every genius I met was in. And it was was tough to not be involved because I thought, well, maybe I'm the idiot. Maybe I'm the one that's applying what I know to be very sensible approaches to investment and finance and I'm wrong. Mm. So it, it really had that... It carried people away, I think, last year. Mm. And in that space there was Bitcoins and altcoins and all these, all these investment uh, opportunities that people had, the conversation barely got past, it's a great idea. So I'd meet people at parties and they'd say, what are you doing? And I'd say, I'm spending a lot of time in the blockchain space. Mm. And they'd say, have you heard of this thing? And it was like, <laughs> I have not heard of the thing. It's the best thing. And then I'd say, what's it built on? I've got no idea what it's yeah. built on. Who's behind it? Who's put? I've no idea. It's just this thing. It's yeah. you got to get this thing. Yeah. And I was the fool for trying to ask: Does it have any merit? Does it like that it sort <laughs> right. of exists? Yeah. But the promise that is that decentralized world, where no one controls what you do, and you have control over your own future, it's a really exciting place that most people would think they would like to get to. Except there's a lot of resistance in getting there. So the Bitcoin privacy again, distinction between private, pseudonymous, and anonymous—three very different things. Mm. Privacy is what the government wants you to to have. Mm-hmm. They, they want to know that you can protect your own information, mm. but if they want to have a look at it, eh, they're going to they're gonna find a way to do it. But, that, yeah. that, that's private. So most things yeah. that you would consider in life, uh, privacy is that, is that level of privacy. The bank, your information is private, but if the government wants to access it, they can get to it. The pseudonymous bit, which is where Bitcoin sits, is it's a little bit more private than that. Even though it's a public blockchain, it's encrypted, it's hard to tell. Like you really need sophisticated software to identify who's doing what and there's an argument that you can't, but I'm sure governments globally, you stitch together enough things, you can figure pieces out Mm. and then you can make a leap. Mm. Genuine anonymity is the great hope for the true believers and it's the great fear for government because that says if you can move into the world where you are anonymous, then you don't really have to come back. And that's the yes. scary part. That's the implication yes. for most that says if you're ha- you and I are happy to live in a world where we trade between ourselves and there's some token, there's some coin that we think is valuable, then we can do that. Mm. And we don't, we don't take the time to say, excuse me, I'm just going to go back to the other side of the curtain and tell the government what I'm doing because I'd like to pay my fair share of taxes. Most people sort of in that side of the world think, well, why would I? I have no need for these yeah. things. I can do it. Yeah. That's super scary for governments. Yeah. It's scary for businesses. For some individuals, it's scary too because the reality is you might be in there for a good reason, mm. but it also provides a lot of opportunities for people there for very very much nefarious sort of reasons. Yes. If you know you're generally anonymous and no one ever comes to get you, what does that say about 
human nature, and I have a view generally that we're not we're not as civilised as people think. You know, all it takes is a little bit of electricity to go out for a day or two, and suddenly people are rioting in the streets with their cans of food. So, yeah. what does the world look like if it's truly anonymised? And yeah. this technology is moving towards that yeah. outcome very, very quickly. Yeah. So we don't know yet. And yeah. this is part of the thing you and I touched on before we started recording, which mm. is, as a rule, we're all very poor predictors of what the future yeah. looks like. So yeah. what does the future look like if you can be genuinely anonymous and people can't track your behaviour? Yeah. You will have some tremendous freedoms and no doubt you'll create great outcomes, but there's also the fear that what does it mean for those that don't have the same noble aims? That's right, yes. And the problem is also the solution, that's absolutely right. And this is why when, when I do my presentations, I say, yeah. is this good or bad? Yeah. And I say, yes, it is good and bad. Is it, yeah. is it this or that? Yes. Or, or this technology is two sides of the same coin. So yeah. I use an example, IPFS, that I mentioned is, you know, has the best name ever, Interplanetary File System. Oh, and, 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 I do love that. Yeah, it's, a, I like it's the very fact Star Trek. That, <laughs> the people that are sitting there and saying, what can we call this that yeah. makes it sound the best? Yeah, anyway, let's call it the Interplanetary File System. <laughs> Yeah. And in very simple terms, the interplanetary file system allows yeah. you to have access to files that are impossible to take down. Effectively, it's seeded peer-to-peer. You don't really need the internet to be around for it to work. So it means okay. that rather than having a single point of failure where normally things are stored on a particular computer and the way you take them offline is you just cut the connection, mm. these can live in various places that as long as you can get a connection computer-to-computer, computer, not necessarily internet-to-internet, internet, mm. you can get access to it. Now, yeah. that says you can't take it down. Yes. Now, one example I used was Turkey having banned Wikipedia mm. and someone put up an IPFS version. That means mm. if you're in Turkey and you want to access Wikipedia, you can get to it. You say, great, this is a good outcome for the people in Turkey. The flip side is a malicious person who puts something up on the internet that is particularly defaming, uh, derogatory, and you say, we can't take that down. Right. So, which right do you want to protect the yes. most? Do you want to protect people's rights to information that they should have or do you want to make sure we're in a position where nothing bad can ever go on the internet and not come down? Mm-hmm. It's a real challenge mm-hmm. for individuals. Now, governments, of course, will err towards one over the other yeah. because that's what they're there to do. They're there to protect citizens. Yeah. But there are lots of cases to be made for the great rights that say, here's a file that can't be taken down. Here's, here's a situation where we know we're not going to tell a revised version of history because here is a version of history that can't be removed. Both of those things are really exciting and really scary at the same time. Mm. But, and that technology is being developed as part of the blockchain suite. And that's when I did a presentation a few weeks ago mm. and someone that was sitting in the room said, but why can't I just put it all on the blockchain? I said, well, there's, there's not the blockchain. The reality <laughs> is they wanted the solution that said all of these things should go there. And then yeah. around the counter argument again, even if there was that, why would you want to put all of the things on the blockchain? These are a series of different blockchains yeah. that store things differently with varying degrees of privacy, various degrees of sort of public accessibility. That's the better way. There are lots of threads. Mm. And this is the, when I sort of view what the future looks like, it's a mesh of all these different blockchains that are permissioned in a particular way and some things that are your most sensitive data, mm. you want them to be on the most tightly controlled, less publicly available blockchains. But you mm. want them somewhere that if you want to be able to access them, then you're available to do it. So they're hybrids as well. Everyone waits for this one solution. Yeah. But the one solution is where we find most of our problems. Facebook is one solution. Yes. That people increasingly say we hate it. Yes. Because yes. it's a solution that doesn't suit us anymore because it yes. wasn't meant to be this thing. But when you centralise all of these pieces of information, yep. you have the convenience that comes from it. Yes. And ultimately then you have the fear that says, hold on, network effects are huge, very hard to extricate yourself, and if I want to make myself disappear, what do I do? So Mm. it's often the case with this sort of tech, be careful what you wish for because you tend to get it. Yes, but isn't that true in life in general? Is that, I mean, you know, because all of the things we make are just a reflection of what we're doing all the time anyways. So us little humans go, this is a good idea because this is how we've been doing things anyways. I think what's really interesting about the things that we do, the the situations that we create is we're not very good at the middle way. 
right? I mean, I think that was Buddha, wasn't it? <laughs> the Buddha's the, the middle path, you know? So it's not about one side or the other. It's both sides. So extremes in either way yep. are very hard to maintain, but that's what we tend to do. We either have not enough or too much. We overindulge and then we fast or we're very bad at the middle way. Is there a future, for example, where we could find a middle way where, you know, you're talking about these different blockchains, yep. these different varying degrees of how we might store and how we might regulate various types of information. Is that moving towards the middle way? I think things become much more merit-based if you don't have visibility on what the masses are doing. So the uh-huh. point on the middle way, I know that's often the case that you are swayed by the behaviour of others. Whether or not you do it consciously or unconsciously, yeah. you do it. Those biases yeah. do play in. I notice that when I walk to work in the morning, I know I'm going against the flow of most people. Most people are walking the opposite direction. Mm, mm. I'm always sort of cognizant of the fact that 90% of people are going in the opposite direction of me in that particular sort of circumstance. Mm. And I always think about it and say, if we're all going in that direction, what's the likelihood that we can get better outcomes than others? So I'm contrarian in that view generally. So I'm always mindful of my personal circumstances there. Mm. When it comes to this tech and the herd mentality, if you look at it in a political sense, for all of the disgruntled people that you have in the, in the political sort of a, uh, the field, mm. people still generally vote 50-50. Or if it's not 50-50, it's 40-40, and now we sit in the bit in the middle where everyone's a little bit confused. Mm. There is a tendency to say which side is likely to win, which side do I want to be on. Mm. Again, coming back to the, the technology and the fact that you just not you don't necessarily have that visibility, how do you vote if you're not worried that anyone can track how you voted? Yes. How do you vote if you don't know what everyone else is doing? If you simultaneously vote, what what happens there? Now, here's the decision based on the, on, on the spur of a moment right. opportunity. And I look at things that are, you look at Brexit-type votes and Trump votes, it doesn't matter what your politics are. Mm. In the Australian ecosystem as well, we're, we're changing leaders every two minutes. It's because people <laughs> yeah. are expressing a view yeah. very quickly and yeah. people are acting on that, on that view. What yeah. does the ability to step back and say, I don't know, but it will, be a, it will be a truer sense of what the pulse of a nation is. It's always nice when people talk about the fact that they, they believe that you know, they're pro or against uh, refugee intakes and this will mm. be want to be a fairer society. But if people vote in a particular way, then it's often the case that you know, that bias kicks in. It's, mm. it, there is greater transparency and I think you'll have greater sort of swings on either side. You might get much worse outcomes again, back to the theory again, the good and the bad about yeah. the same thing, yeah. if you don't know what that situation is going to be. But yeah. I think you're right. The middle way, particularly if people think the middle way won't get them the outcome. I think mm. a lot of the time when people vote or they make a decision, mm. they want to get to 50.1% because they know if they get to that outcome, then that's the outcome that the majority will go with. So right. I think it will encourage potentially people to say, this is what I want to do and it's a, it's a merit-based decision. Mm. And to see what comes out of it, because a lot of the technology here is there's all sorts of different things that are being implemented in the way that tech is being constructed that says, what are you willing to sacrifice to get the outcome that you want? And it's a whole bunch of mechanisms, token mechanisms, design mechanisms that say, mm. how much do you believe in this thing you're voting for mm. and how much are you willing to give up to prove? So this is part of the, the staking argument a lot of these, in a lot of these tokens and a lot of these Ooh. protocols where they say, if you really believe it, mm. Give us something or commit to something that shows that. And, again, if I say to you, you get to vote and the outcome isn't going to really impact you in the next five or ten years, you'll vote one way. But if I say vote now will, and you have to commit to that voting process, money, time, mm-hmm. commitment, output, mm-hmm. does it change what you're going to do? And often it will because if the easy way is an option, you might choose it. But if the hard way that gets you a better outcome in the short term might influence it as well. So there's a lot of psychology in a lot of this technology at the moment, which again is scary because you just don't know what the implication that will be in the long term, but uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a wild ride from here, so I'm interested, <laughs> interested to see how it will uh, play how out. How it will play out, yeah. We've kind of been pushing into this future, but I'm just wondering if we can conceptualise it a bit more. Is there a solid kind of story that you like to tell around an ideal projected future? Yeah. I think the, the obvious one that is the use case that connects with most people is just your own identity at mm-hmm. the moment. You know, mm-hmm. What we've become accustomed to doing, and it's only a recent construct. It wasn't the case, you go back you know, go back 15 years ago, there was only a certain amount of information that related to you that was put into the public yeah. domain or that was shared necessarily. You told your bank, you told the driver's licence bureau, that, that sort of information mm-hmm. is what you put out. And then you had these two or three pieces of information that you carried with you, your passport. 
in the last few years, we've just gotten used to giving everybody who wants to interact with us all of our information mm -hmm. and not being too bothered about where it goes until you're told your information's been hacked. And then again, most of the time people go, that was terrible. And they just go about yeah. the day to day life. It just very quickly became the norm. Yeah. That should change. And I think it is changing now. Because again, this technology allows you to say, well, hold on, how much of my information do you really need in mm -hmm. order to move forward? Do you need to know that I'm a human? And is that all you need to know? Do you need mm. to know sex, age, buying habits? Then if you don't then have to give that information away, mm. why would you? So in this odd contrast, we're finding ourselves in a situation where when you are out in the street, you're less private than you've ever been. There are cameras watching you, you're scanned everywhere you go, blah, blah, blah. You, you, can, be, you can be seen. Mm. But in your private world, in your data world, the, sh the shroud is coming back down in front of you. So mm. you're in a much stronger position to say, I'm only willing to share these pieces of information. So that control, and I think I mentioned in the presentation that you saw me, mm. that you saw me give, I think 10-year-olds today, 10, 15 years from now, will ask why we were ever silly enough to give people so much information when all we needed yeah. to do was access an app. So why did the app need to know every single step? Why was I being tracked every time I moved? Yeah. Why did it know that my phone was pointing in a particular direction so I was clearly walking or on a track? Why did we need to know that? All the app needed to know was I'm a human and I'm willing to give you that little bit of information. Mm. That's part one. The other part then ends up being the efficiency that comes from having a centralised control personally, centralised control of your data. And mm -hmm. I like to give the example of if you're going to rent a property, then at the moment you go in and fill a really annoying form with all of your personal details mm -hmm. and then you go to the next property and they say, here's another really annoying form and so on, so on, so on. Yeah. It's such an inefficient thing to mm -hmm. do. And, again, I think you flash forward and say, well, here I am verifying my income, who I am, what age I am, mm. and I don't have to give you all the information. All you need to know is that I, I can verify that I earn money beyond a certain income bracket and with a push of a button I can permission that access out. What does that mean for your day-to-day -day life? Because if it works for the rental application, also, it mm. also works for your application for electricity, your application for credit. Suddenly, again, it becomes a much faster and much more efficient way that says own yourself again in mm -hmm. a data sense. And I think that will come relatively quickly. The opposite end of the spectrum, which is GDPR and the and the protections that are being afforded for people that are either in the EU or who are EU residents that sit outside of mm -hmm. the EU, mm -hmm. that's chasing the same outcome. It's saying to businesses, you need to be very careful about the data you control mm -hmm. and that if people have opted in to the data or giving you the data, you can't assume they always want to give you the data. So it's this rolling exercise in permission. Mm -hmm. That's chasing the tech. The tech will, will supersede that in the years to come where you'll right. never have to give them all the things yeah. and all they'll have is some rights which you clearly have permission to them because you you've got an ease of access or ease of withdrawal mm. of, that, of that data. So I think once people get comfortable again, on the fact that they can control who they are as far as the, the, the world is concerned, mm -hmm. that, that will make a huge difference. Yeah, in, in the confidence in the system. The confidence in the system and yeah. just the way you interact with, with all of these, yeah. all these businesses. People say, I don't want to be marketed to, or so you can make a decision who you're marketed to. Yeah. I don't want to give people information that I, that I don't need to. You can control that again. So that becomes much more the self-sovereign mm -hmm. system. It used mm -hmm. to be when you said as an individual, in the village example, mm -hmm. Do they know who I am? You said they know who I am because I come with my parents. Here they are. They can vouch for me. I've been yeah. here for 10 years and this is where I'm, and you sort of give that information mm. out. This allows you then to say again, I don't need to give you any more than, than the minimum. And I think mm. that once people become comfortable with the fact they don't have to do it, it's a much better way to live potentially. Yeah. But this is the challenge between government as well. Government wants to know who you are. And yes. Government wants to track who you are because primary function of government is obviously collect revenue, yeah. distribute it for the good of the masses. Yeah. So they want to make sure you are who you say you are. Yeah. And generally they've done that by controlling all of the things that prove who you are, your identities. Mm. They're all state-based and, and nation-based systems. So yes. handing that control over again is a very tricky thing to be able to do in the medium term for governments because if they lose the capacity mm. to control that, they generally lose the capacity to raise revenue. Which, yes. is, which is the trickiest thing of all yes. for governments to lose control of. Yes. So if I had time travel back in time again, and I don't know if you've read the book Sapiens. I, 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 I haven't. Uh, lots of people reference it. But, yes. uh, <laughs> but in the book, there was a lengthy section about the evolution of money and how we decided to believe in this thing and it's got value and how it made a lot of things really simple as yeah. far as trading, you know. So instead of carrying around 25 chickens, I just have this one thing in my pocket and I 
trade that. Right. And so because it was efficient and it worked really well, it actually, historically speaking, when you look at when it started taking off, it didn't take that long. And I'm just wondering, because government's so slow and everyone else is so fast, people, I think the more available it becomes and the simpler things become, people are just going to quickly want to do things this way because it's so fast. It's, It's easy. It's so much easier. And then we've got government that moves really, really slowly, who's kind of, you know, going to be watching from the sidelines. And I'm just wondering how, you know, how they retain relevancy. That's the challenge. So the thing about money is uh, your observation. It's a it's an artificial construct. It doesn't. You know, people say, "Well, why is Bitcoin worth anything?" It's like, mm. well, why is anything worth? worth no, anything? It, you just believe it's a story. It's a good story. It's a great story. And you know, people talk about gold, and they say, "Well, gold's worth something." Yeah. So the 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 intrinsic value of gold is a is a very small subset of what gold is worth. It's mm. just the fact that people view it as a good store of wealth. Mm. It's almost that first leap for people where you say, "How can it be these things?" And 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 that's why I'll often say, "Well, you know, here are the things that." Make Make up money, you know, the way people view it, the characteristics of money. Do a lot of these digital currencies exhibit those characteristics? A lot of them do, mm. by and large. Mm. Do you think there's value? If you and I are willing to exchange, you know, in a barter economy, our services, we say there's value in the service, and I might have a, a skill that uh, I can only deliver to, you know, via my hands, you still value it, and we say there's an exchange of value. It's just a leap. And, and for mm. most people, they don't make the leap or can't make the leap, which I understand because when you're conditioned over a long period of time to believe this is what money is, Invariably, people fall back to the theory. They say, well, the government backs it. And mm. again, the more you realise and read, governments aren't really back it anymore. They just no. they print money according to uh, their relative strength and they say, well, we'll stand behind it, which is true. They stand behind it. It's mm. really backed. It's just it's the power of a, of a nation. You look at the opposite ends of the spectrum. Com- confidence. It is confidence, confidence, 100%. America, the US has been printing money nonstop since the GFC. Mm. Just, they just kept printing money. Mm. Now, in the efficient market scenario, there's so much money in the system, it should have caused all sorts of issues. It mm. just hasn't mm. because America is America. And although everyone says it's a terrible the debt that they are creating, who, who says we're not accepting American money anymore? Who says America, we're sidelining you? Whereas you take a, you take a small nation, mm. uh, you take what's happened in Greece, Greece was able to be told, we're not doing it, we're not giving you any money anymore and mm. the economy ground to a, to a halt. So the theory is this beautiful system that works the same way for everyone except it doesn't. And the thing that tends to spur people's view of what it is or what isn't the trust mm. that in government is, did someone try to take your things? Because that's what you tend to notice more often than not. I think it was in Cyprus a few years back where the, where the government said, if you have X, more than X amount in your bank account, then we're taking some of it. Mm. And that's when people thought, well, hold on, but it's my money. Yes. And then they realised it actually isn't because you don't control it. Yes. If you can't stop people from taking your money, then... The, make no mistake, it's not your money. You're just, oh, we're all just kind of borrowing it, really. We are. We are. And so <laughs> yeah. that thing that says that's the great test, and this is where the libertarians will look at it and they say, yeah. well, you know, I want to be able to control it. The, the scariness, if you think about a scenario that is you, you go to the airport, you leave the country, you fill in the form, and the form says, mm. do you have more than $10,000 worth of currency? And you either tick the box, and I don't know anyone that ticks it, but, you know, I've never left the country with that much cash. You tick the box mm. and it says yes or no. Mm. That was the fear. Can you physically take this money out of the country? Yes. You look at the Bitcoin-style version of this world, you can leave the country with a billion dollars. You just need to remember the string of numbers and the string of letters that mm. make up your address. And yes. you can leave the country with all the money that you need because wherever you are, is where your money is and wherever yes. you are is your access. Yes. It's a very different proposition, which is why yeah. government generally have had a real issue when it comes to this because I think there is there is a, a certain sort of dynamic that says they don't want to miss an opportunity to be a global leader mm-hmm. and, you know, be at the forefront and raise money. Yes. And if you say we're banning it, then the ability for this to move quickly means that if you say no, then they'll find another home. Yes. So it's a little bit, governments have been in a very difficult position the last few years because there are some jurisdictions that have said we're doing things. China said we're banning ICOs, mm. but we're not banning blockchain. Mm. And I think there's still a lot of conversation in China about ICOs. Lots of people still trying to move mm. currency in and out, digital currency, but they've just said we're doing this. But that's the Chinese government that has the capacity to say we're doing yeah. this and you will comply. Yes. 
Yeah. Whereas in Western countries to say you're banned, well, people will do one of two things. They'll either stop doing it or they'll do it under cover of, uh, of darkness. Mm. Very, again, very challenging. Mm. This, this ability to move, this velocity of money, this fluidity is, is not something that I think has been experienced before. But it is mm. that psychological leap for most people that says, do you believe it's money or not? And then once you're okay with the fact that it has value and people are willing to exchange, suddenly it opens up a, a ton of opportunities about what it might look like for you in the future. Yeah. Do you think that in the future the economies will be based this way as opposed to the confidence system that's built into like a nation state or because, you know, currently politically there's a schism of people who 100% appear to believe yes. and, and they're becoming ultra-nationalists and then there's people who just are it's like they're just floating off into the ether. Like they're, they're so not interested in what's happening that it doesn't feel like it's about them or it affects them or it's part of their future plans. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm just at this kind of schism that's happening, you know, will they become like these two shadow economies? The question is who you, who you trust. If you trust your government yeah. to look after your interests, then you might say let's keep all of our eggs in this basket. I think at a global, from a global perspective, the challenge will be it's going to be very easy to move money, very easy to transact. It's going to be very easy to make things disappear. The technology is just moving that way. So whether or not you say it's good, bad or indifferent, the tech will allow you to hide much more than you can hide in a digital sense. Because if it's digital money and privacy is, mm. is end-to-end mm. and you don't think you're going to get caught, again, what, what do people do when they don't think they're ever going to be found out mm. is they're more comfortable to do things like move it across jurisdictions. So what does that do for governments? It actually incentivizes them to cooperate more mm. because if Australia says we've got an arrangement with the US, that means someone here who we know is physically resident in Australia is engaging with someone in the US at the moment because of the boundaries and the ability to track these things, there's, a, there's an agreement in place that says this, these are reciprocal rights that we've got. Mm. Now, what happens when it becomes opaque? You kind of trace it. What happens when it becomes anonymized? Mm. Then it creates an incentive for governments to say, let's try to make sure the old system doesn't fall apart. Let's work harder to identify if this is going backwards and forwards. Now, that will make some people come together, but it also creates incentive for smaller countries who don't otherwise have a big say or a yeah. big global impact to say, yeah, we're, we're going to encourage you to come to our jurisdiction. So that, that global dynamic is, is going to be changed significantly, and it's happening at the moment. So mm. places that don't necessarily, haven't necessarily in recent history been given a lot of attention mm -hmm. economically, mm -hmm. are getting it. Estonia is not something that, you know, not a place that was mentioned a lot five or ten years ago, but mm -hmm. Estonia comes up a lot now because of how open they are to digital innovation. Mm. Malta is another one at the moment that's positioning itself as a centre of a lot of technological sort of breakthroughs. Mm. More obvious ones, Singapore and the like are doing it. So yeah. everyone's saying, well, here's how it suits us. And it's mm. not the... It's not that we're going to make you, you know, we're going to hide your money in a Swiss bank account. Yeah. Because suddenly Swiss bank accounts are very insecure relative to the opportunities that are going to be created for this. You don't have to worry yes. about it going to uh, the Swiss bank account not to disappear. So jurisdictions mm. are jockeying and saying, mm. if we know there's a potential for great inflows, then we're willing to, to buck the trend and buck the conformity that's associated with it. So this is part of the reason I've described the blockchain tech sort of scene and everything that comes as 360-degree surround sound. You say, which bit do you like? I like the privacy. I like the globalisation. There are political ramifications to the left of me. There are issues in relation to privacy on the right. Mm. It's very difficult for, for you generally to get your head around. Mm. And at the moment, having come back from a trip recently in uh, China and Taiwan, where I was part of a blockchain delegation, mm. the Chinese are top-down directing a lot of institutions to enable this technology in their operation. Okay. Why would they be doing it? if it's the great fear that they anonymize, because mm. blockchain technology creates efficiencies. Mm. So you've got a smart decision on the part of a centralised government where they say we can be more efficient. Mm. What does that allow you to do? Mm. It allows you to redeploy resources that have been used more efficiently. So rather than 100 cents on the dollar that goes to something that doesn't get a great financial outcome, mm. if you can reduce the cost of part of government, then that same money can then be spent somewhere it's going to have a greater impact. That's, right. the, that's the nation-building yep. element. Now, in Australia, you know, we're, we're a bottom-up type of approach. You mm. talk about innovation that comes bottom-up. The government's mm. not meant to be particularly interventionist. Mm. It's actually a less efficient system when it comes to this technology because it doesn't drive 
the uptake if you don't mm. insist upon it. So it's interesting seeing these these economic systems. You look at China now; they say it's it's a it's a communist country that has some democratic, notionally democratic elements in it when it mm. comes to the economy, mm. but it really isn't. Mm. And you look at us where we say, "Here's where we are. It's a democracy. You get to choose what you want. We don't want to tell you." But you're missing opportunities that, that the tech potentially provides. So even that interplay is, is, is fascinating to watch to say, mm. will they move ahead quickly because they're insisting upon it? Mm. What does that mean for countries like Australia? I've never been more acutely aware of the Melbourne-Sydney rivalry as I was when I was in China and then after okay. Taiwan. Okay. Because no one in China is talking about the regional rivalry to any degree because no one cares. It's China <laughs> versus the world. Right. It's Taiwan versus the world. Yeah. In Australia, it's... Melbourne versus Sydney, Sydney versus Melbourne. Oh, by the way, there's Queensland. I hate someone mentioned Adelaide. Like, it's just this thing that is we're, we're focused inwardly yeah. from an economic point of view, and I think okay. the system is set up in a way that rewards it as well. You know, Sydney's loss is Melbourne's gain, and Melbourne's gain is Sydney's loss. Right. Whereas I think a lot of these, a lot of the, the global perspective, particularly with you know with larger nations, yeah. is they say we want to win as a nation. So this is this is a nation building priority. I think that's going to be a real challenge for mm. Australians in the next few years when it comes to this technology because there are clearly benefits of rolling this out mm. but often the incentives in the short term are to you know to succeed at a localized level so I think that's right. a, it's an interesting dynamic for me to watch right I hadn't thought of it in that way but now just thinking back of different articles that I've read so for example in I think Achuka is trialing its blockchain enabled power distribution mm. so they have a centralized like solar bank and people are feeding in and then they're feeding back out and they wouldn't be able to do that without blockchain. And they're kind of like thumbing their nose at the state government, like, look what we can do, you know, and you, we're beating you to it. No more blackouts and we're going to be really efficient. And then people are looking at Chuka going, wow, that's cool. <laughs> and then that's it. That's it. <laughs> and that's it. And um, but but in fact, you know, what they're doing is so necessary for not just places in Australia, but all over the world. The system that they're setting up, that self-efficiency, you know, imagine what that could do in very remote areas, let's say, for example, in India or, you know, places where there's education and there's know-how and we could do this. And it's yeah. The way, it's, the way, it's the way tech is run. So traditionally, mm. as tech has evolved in the last, you know, 10 or 15 years and evolved really quickly, the path to market is someone comes up with an idea, mm. it's proprietary in nature, it gets built out potentially to a certain scale, whether it's small or large, someone will then buy it or they'll hold on to it. And it is all about defensive techniques to stop other people from stealing your IP mm. and owning the revenue stream that comes from it. Yeah. Blockchain tech doesn't work that way. Blockchain tech is primarily open source or a lot of it's open source. There's right. distrust when it comes to these things. If you say we have a proprietary blockchain, as a rule, the, the ecosystem says, well, if it's proprietary, we can't test it and we can't participate in it, then we're not interested. So it's you go do your own thing. And that's a fundamental It's a fundamental switch. It's why you're finding a lot of companies at the moment in Australia in particular that I've found mm. are in a state of paralysis because you're used to just buying the thing, yeah. knowing that everyone can't buy the thing because they can't afford it. Right. And they will buy the thing and they'll make their business better and it'll be to the exclusion of everyone who can't afford it. Now, what do you do when everyone has access to the thing? Yes. How do you respond? You've got to be much better at deciding which one of those things is the right thing for you, if you know what I mean. People just say, you got to pick a side. You go, what do you believe in? I believe in this technology. Well, do you believe in it enough to sidle up to it and use it as your tech when you know that everyone else can also do that or they can say, here's an alternative that we think is the go. It's hard because it requires people to make better decisions about technology. So at the moment, you think about something like Ethereum is, is, a, is a protocol that a lot of people talk about. Mm -hmm. Ethereum has a lot of people who are working alongside it effectively. The, the Ethereum Alliance is an example. It's businesses, traditional businesses that are saying we're working basically on the principles that Ethereum is running out and if we do things that make Ethereum better, we effectively feed back into the protocol. So it's running alongside. It's not seeking to own it's not seeking to own anything. It is the open source mentality. It says if we make it better, everyone gets the benefit because they can't own the technology. Yes. So you suddenly become incentivized to make it better. If you've chosen it, if I've said to you, you've, you're now in a race and the winner of the race gets to share the spoils, you're incentivized to make sure that someone else who you're working with has a good outcome. And that's not been the case with a lot of these business 
uh, outcomes in the past. You just buy it. You mm-hmm. buy it, you buy a right, and you hold, yeah. on to, hold, hold on to that right. You have the license, or you have this, and and it's trick. And you, you, that's government, you know, from a government perspective yeah. as well. Who do you align yourself with? And it requires people to understand the tech. And given the tech is complicated, making a decision now. If I said to you at the start of the internet, pick a browser that you think would win. You know, people would have said, you know, I'm choosing blah, blah, blah. And then yeah. eventually, you uh, go, wow, what a dumb choice. Yeah. That uh, what, yeah. Alta Vista. Yeah. You know, just something yeah. for the part. But so that's, that's what I'm into. And you go, well, Google kind of, Chrome kind, kind of, of one. Yeah. And, and that thing that says that even at any point in time, you know, go all in on this on this decision yes. and and commit to it in a in a financial sense, it makes it much tougher. So this is part of, I think this is part of the reticence. We're we're a naturally conservative business environment. I think the regulatory environment in Australia means that we don't tend to make enormous mistakes. So we sort of slowly mm. push ourselves into them. This technology is moving fast enough. That it means you have to you have to actually take a leap, and I don't think yeah. a lot of people are conditioned to taking that leap. I'm just wondering while you're talking. I was then thinking back again to what you said about China versus Australia, and then I started thinking in a broader global context of collective cultures versus individualistic cultures. And if blockchain's accelerating in a collective environment where you're doing things for the good and for everyone and we share this idea that that feels more natural and also the types of benefits that you get from that type of of activities are less challenging for people to get their head around whereas like in, in a culture like for example australia or maybe the u.s it's more challenging because it's mine it's mine it's mine i fought for it i bought that you know i own this you lease this we do this this is the deal you know, is it like the background cultural barrier there as well? I, I think it is because you're conditioned. I always joke about Australia. You know, most Australians are conditioned to say this is the best country in the world. Best country. Can't argue about it. Best country. There's no better country than this country. Yeah. And then I joke that wherever you are, you're in France, you'll say France, best country. This country, the French, best country. Yeah. And you know, even when you talk about war turn, people are nationalistic. They're patriotic. Right? Yeah. So that's the conditioning. It says you, you have to. The, the geography is what defines you. Mm. And who are you if the geography doesn't define you? You know, with Australia, New Zealand, for example, Collectively, we've always talked about the fact we have a lot of things that are similar between the, the countries and there's flows of people backwards and forwards, but mm. there's always been a very different mentality that says New Zealand is New Zealand, Australia is Australia. Mm. But what if we can share social good against mm-hmm. those two, uh, across those two countries? And mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. The border doesn't matter. The ability to, to create outcomes for people become less contingent on where the geography ends. Mm. Suddenly there's a melding of these things and people are trying to get outcomes that have benefit for everybody. You stop thinking about the geography if... if New Zealand is better off and Australia is better off because of the tech, then what do you care yeah. where the border sort of ends? Yeah. Again, challenging for most people because a lot of these relationships are built on the fact that there is a clear demarcation. And, you know, to jump into the, on the political sense at the moment, you, you listen to the arguments that come out of the US or the arguments that come out of Australia, whatever it is, mm. the position is generally let's help our own. You know, that's, you yes. know, it doesn't matter what country in the world is, everyone yeah. just says before we help those people, let's help our own. Yeah. Well, what if the tech lets you help? people who are in a similar position and it doesn't matter where you are yes what does that mean you're no worse off and people are potentially better off what does that mean mm. and this is part of the promise of the of the technology and i've never seen in the social good sense mm. in the social good space mm. when it comes to this tech it makes sense because there's a mechanism in a lot of the business ideas that people come up with that says it makes sense financially to do good yes which is traditionally not the case usually it's do you want the economic outcome or do you want to do good? Mm. Which one of the two? Mm. Whereas a lot of the people that are talking about social good now say this technology makes things better. Uh, an example when it comes to people trying to identify uh, refugees' origin, mm. the ability to have a digital identity that mm-hmm. means that even if someone rips up your paperwork, wherever you are in the world, you have the capacity to prove who you are, potentially creates great efficiencies in, in the challenges that most countries have. How do we know who you are? How can we establish who you are? Yeah, you know, well, what if the tech can? Suddenly, are you less worried? Do you have to? Do you have to? You know, treat people in a particular way? Do you mm. need to house them in a particular way? Mm. If you've got the capacity to press a button and say, "Here is an immutable record of your history that shows, yes, you were persecuted," mm. because we were able to identify that over a period of time. Mm. Sure, come through the front door and stop treating everyone exactly the same. The mm. technology allows that capacity, and again, good and bad. So mm. the other example is professionally at the moment. 
if you give someone a resume and like for like people went to the same university same qualification three years apart three years of experience you look mm. the same mm. the data points potentially in this allow you to say well one of us was lazy outside of university and the other person did a lot of learning that was self-taught self-correct self um identified as being valuable and there's a data point that points to the fact that you did an online course and you visited these websites mm. and you did, suddenly you distinguish yourself as a better potential employee but that's only because you're comparing to the person who otherwise looked like they were a pretty good employee till you show yourself up so mm. again that two-sided process that says are you better or worse or does the data just tell a story that you didn't otherwise want to tell so yeah and the law of unintended consequences of a lot of these things. <laughs> Is there a way we can marry other types of technology with blockchain to help create? So justice is one thing. Yes. Empathy is another. If we look at justice as this kind of factual-based, it's blind, there's the impartiality on the facts. But then... We all know life is very complicated and there's so many things that go on around it. So are there different ways that we can marry other types of technology or other experiences to create the empathy, the, yes. the insight? Again, the good and the bad. Yes. What do you want to measure and how do you want to measure it and what do you want to hold people to is the challenge. I know in China at the moment there's a lot of talk about basically social scoring and the social yeah. scoring element that says, you know, the localised version people are much better behaved in theory in an Uber than they are in a taxi mm. because there's a greater likelihood if you're in an Uber and you misbehave, your score will go down from less than five to now I think now they announced recently that if it's four or so, below, yeah. then you get warned that pretty much you might not be able to get into an Uber again. Now that yeah. people should be outraged, shouldn't they, that yeah. they do that or they just conform yeah. and say there's a consequence to my behaviour so I won't be a douchebag in the back of an Uber. <laughs> But if I'm in a cab, yeah. I don't really care what's going to happen. <laughs> so it's it's the it's the penalty, and this again is this thing that says you know are people at their core good, are they at their core bad? The thing that straightens people up often is what's the consequence of it. So yeah. if you're seen not to be charitable, take charitability in the reverse order. If you need to record for public consumption every time you're charitable, will it make you more or less charitable? Mm. With most people, you don't want to be perceived as not being charitable, so it's right. likely to drive a behaviour now. Yeah. It's driving a good outcome, effectively, carrot and stick, that says do you want people to think that you're not charitable? You can't let them do that. So start doing nice things. Mm. And is the, the motivation then suddenly is corrupted potentially, mm. but the outcome is good. So this is mm. the thing about the technology and what that data yeah. potentially means yeah. for people when you come out. What's the outcome? What's, yeah. what's the aim? Yeah. I use the, uh, the example of the checks in the mail. What if I can tell whether the cheque was actually in the mail and <laughs> yeah. the next person can sell it? So it's a little white lie, it doesn't yeah. really matter. But if yeah. you've told that white lie a hundred times yeah. and I've got some accessibility to these records that says, yeah. oh, by the way, the person has said this, you, you're incentivized not to be that person. So, yeah. again, do you want the freedom to do this? And this is where the system potentially split out. You can have the, the private world says no one will ever know, mm. but there is also the, potentially the public option where people say, no, I want to be on the record. I want to provide an mm. accessible record that says I'm a good person mm. and my behaviour is reflective of it. Who would you choose going forward? If I said to you, here are two people, mm. one person tells you they're this person but they're not willing to share the data and the other person tells you this person and here is a very obvious open history of all of their good deeds. Mm. Who do you gravitate towards? The Chinese experience, potentially, mm. the theories mm. that they're creating social cohesion mm. by insisting on people monitoring these sort of levels of data. Yes. Again, everything is the two-sided the two-sided coin. Yeah, which part of the world, yeah. which version of the future do you think people will take us towards? <laughs> this is Elon Musk talking about know. You know, you know, AI yeah. will destroy the world. You go, well, do you believe at some point in time the technology makes us the best people we've ever been or do you think effectively we yeah. blow ourselves up and yeah. there's a simulation that, uh, that runs this for us? <laughs> so, I, 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 like, I like the fact that you know, it's very, very difficult to identify yeah. where this is, this is going to go. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, it, it's always been complicated and we've always been, with every, I think, generation and with every technological advance that we've come to, we've always had so much optimism. And then we're like, oh, shoot, did anybody look back there? Because there's 
some stuff, right? Like, you know, all the cars, like super cool. But did you see all the environmental stuff? Yeah. Like in the, the hole that's, what's that? What's the hole up there? Anyone seen that? You know, so there's always like this amazing optimism. And so we're kind of always swinging through these checks and balances. And now we're at this point of self-awareness where we know that we do it. And this is what makes it more complicated. Before there was a lot of innocence. When you look back at the 50s and when they had these projections for the future, everything felt so beautiful and clean and squeaky because it, it was like it was very innocent. We only could kind of think back to the maybe the Industrial Revolution. And now we've got the Industrial Revolution. We've got the whole last 20th century. So we've got like 200 years of pretty solid technological innovation that's been increasing that whole time, right? And so now we're at this place where we've lost that shine yeah. and we're maturing <laughs> and um, and we're becoming a lot more tempered. And and so while, while things are moving very quickly, we're also, we've got this other pull. It's just this really interesting pull back to what is fundamental about being human? What are we? What are, like, we're questioning, like, again, but in really clear ways, like, what are we? So the books like Homo Sapien has become an international bestseller yeah. where it's just like, hey, what does it mean to be us? And the more things get advanced, we talk about, well, what fundamentally is a human trait? If we have artificial intelligence, what are we? And so it's like the Frankenstein and the monster or Frankenstein, the doctor and, you know, and his monster. And so it's like, who are we and what have we created? And that is making us look backwards, like with fresh eyes. And I think the, I think you're right to say that the, the view that has been that rear vision mirror that said everything was better. It was simple. It was better. When people talk about technology at the moment and they say, you know, stop looking at your phone and stop doing this and just connect with people. Mm. I know the way I use the tech. I've never connected with more people. We, you, know, you and I are a byproduct of the fact this if this conversation right now is a byproduct of the fact that you saw me somewhere talking about some technology. There wasn't another consistent, and there wasn't another way we sort of ran into each other. Mm. You, you messaged me, and suddenly we're sitting here. You go, that's yeah. the tech. That, that's, that's the opportunity right. being created by the tech. Yeah. The optimism I always reflect on the fact that I'm going to guess. I'm going to use my psychic abilities right on you now. Okay. And I'm going to guess that when New Year's Eve was rolling around, you thought to yourself, this might be the best year ever. Right. That, that's all I, I probably did. I think I do that every year. I like think next year it's going to be amazing. I think every person, by and large, yeah. unless you are sadly in, a, in, a, in an unhappy spot, most people will say, I'm pretty sure that next year will be the best year I ever yeah. had. And no yeah. one reflects and that the scorecard doesn't come out to say, how did we all go? Yeah. It was kind of like last year except one more year. But yeah. we're hardwired to believing things are going to get, yeah. get better. And that's why I like... I poked people in the chest when I gave that speech that you were present in. I've said mm. most times in our history, you can't claim to have been aware of what was happening. Mm. Now, the flow of information now gives you the opportunity to say, I think something's happening. And mm. then it gives you opportunity to investigate what's happening. And it gives you an opportunity then to make your own assessment mm. so that you are less and less able to say, well, who knew? Well, yeah. the reality at the moment is if blockchain becomes a thing, lots of people knew. And yes. lots of people would have known and done nothing. And there are some that have said it's a thing and I'm willing to, to move on it. And that excites me because it, it, it is the, the self-determined person. It's the non-destructive element of people saying the personal freedom. You need to review it yourself and say, is this something I believe? And then be mm. comfortable. And I think that's what I closed with in the present day. Be comfortable that if you don't think this is transformative, then you made your decision. And if you miss out, it, you know, you'll lament. But if you if you if you ride the wave, you'll say, "Great, this is mm. something I saw coming." And you know, when people talk about the tulip bubble, and they say it's like the tulip bubble. Well, mm. no one was no one was sending messages on Insta and Snapchat during the tulip bubble. The no. ability to communicate now, like people say, this is the fastest it's ever been. Like, well, of course it is because we can communicate at a much faster speed than yes. we've ever been able to communicate yes. before the internet. We didn't send messages about the internet. On the internet, this thing's coming. So clearly the flow of information says yeah. we now have the internet yeah. to get this information to the other side of the world and backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards yeah. at an incredibly efficient rate. So you are well-placed to identify what these things are and how they're likely to, to impact you. So 
that that's exciting for me when I look at the technology that says, you know, how does it impact me in my in a professional setting? So when I see people moving, if you were to come a lawyer mm. now, mm. one of the things that that appealed to me in the blockchain space mm. when I started paying attention to it is there are lots of people who are currently in the system to become lawyers more than the system needs. Mm. We don't need more lawyers in a, in a real sense. There's enough that are in the system right now and practising. Right. Or, you know, there's going to be a reducing element. But that doesn't matter. People are still in the system saying we're coming out yes. as lawyers. Yeah. You come out into the space, you become qualified. And then if you want to be a lawyer, you're going to judge, most people will judge their success according to the financial outcomes they get as a lawyer. Mm. There are many, many people in front of you in the queue, much more than you've just come out of school with. You play this game where you have to snake through this queue to become the best lawyer you're ever going to be. The thing about this sort of technology and the evolution and how quick it's been is who's the blockchain person in most of the rooms that you're in? It's the person that decided a month ago, three months ago, six months ago, 12 months ago, that they, they're interested in the space. And there aren't people, I like the fact that you can't get people like me in their mid-40s who are saying to others, I've been doing this for 20 years. You know you haven't. No one has. <laughs> It's great. I love the fact that 20-year-olds can say, I've been doing this as long as you have. I love love that, the excitement. I spoke to a a young man that's here at uh, at the place that I work and he he said he's into esports and blockchain. I said, of course you are. What else would you be doing if you were a 20-year-old male? (laughs) Esports and blockchain. Games and the future of the world. I said, this is it. Who's saying, no, you know what, I think I want to become an accountant. You go, no, I want to change the world (laughs) and I want to make sure that this is is the future I uh, I create for myself. So I'm looking at that and seeing it at 20 and seeing it at 80. And so it's a little bit of a, it's an insider's club at the moment because Mm -hmm. I think it's still the case that although there's a lot of conversation about it, as I said earlier, most people start and end with this, I think I get it, Mm -hmm. and then they revert to, to normal life. So I, I like I like the excitement that says, where does the tech take you? Because that point that you made before, the intersection that says IoT makes much more sense with blockchain and you know, machine learning makes much more sense with blockchain, mm. artificial intelligence, because all these things are part of that same continuum yeah. of information. If I tell you my fridge is smart, you go, so what? You know, my fridge is smart too. Yeah. If our fridges are both smart, they're interconnected, they can exchange information, they can exchange currency or tokens, yeah. um, I can incentivise you to eat more healthily, you can incentivise me. You know, yes. Suddenly your yes. smart fridge makes a lot more sense than, you know, I can get a Jamie Oliver recipe downloaded from the internet mm. that I'm going to cook really badly. So <laughs> that that mesh is yeah. the exciting part for me that mm. says those two devices then speak to each other mm. and what other devices can and should they speak to that make for a better mm. uh, for a better outcome. So that that's where I look at it and go, this is where I see it all coming together. So you stop looking at it from a siloed perspective yeah. that said this is the thing yeah. and it's part of the reason why some of these businesses across across supply chains or across financial services where they're saying we're connecting five things that, that are better when connected mm. than they are when they're individual and, and they maintain it. Back to the sort of the Echuca, Sydney, Melbourne example, mm. if there are people doing their own thing in Melbourne or Sydney and they're competing with the people who are in Taiwan who want to recognise they want to make a better fist of you know, themselves as an economy, mm. who wins? You know, it's those yeah. that say we're willing to come together and partner and have, yes. and have conversations. So that's, yes. again, one of the elements that I'm enjoying watching play out. Mm. Mm. I'm just mindful of time. Um, so we've been going for about an hour. Okay. <laughs> and I talk quickly, so that's like two hours. <laughs> Worth of conversations, yeah. right? Yeah. I think I have to slow you down. Yeah, most of the time people play podcasts and they speed them up. Yeah. I can't imagine how yeah, fast I speak. They'll, they'll slow yours down. I'm just wondering, is there any closing comments? Is there any takeaways? Like, is there a motto, a billboard, a thing that, is, you know, to put in your mind for the listener? What should I know? Yeah, the I ran a conference recently where I brought together a bunch of different people who were all talking about this, but weren't talking about it together. And mm. I spoke very briefly at my own conference. I didn't take the opportunity to stand up there for a long time. And mm. I effectively just made the point that those who do will win mm. in this environment because mm. not a lot of people have done it before. So the reality of being rewarded for effort being rewarded for taking the time to understand it, being rewarded for showing up to a to a meetup and having a conversation. Yeah. I think that the technology, because it is evolving, you'll get an opportunity that you otherwise probably couldn't get from most of the things you would do. And most people will suffer from the decision making that is, I'll wait till it's ready 
but this won't be ready. The whole point mm. with the way this tech is evolving is it'll get better and it'll have lots more applicability as you go, but yeah. no one will ever say, oh, good news, the blockchain is ready, in the same <laughs> way as no one has said, oh, thank goodness, the internet is now done. It's, yeah, it's it, did it, wasn't it two years ago? I think, it, it, I think, yeah. It's, yeah, I think it was done. Yeah. I think that, that, that's yeah. the case for the internet as well. Yeah. Keeps doing different things we didn't mm. expect. It keeps creating opportunities for communities and individuals you wouldn't expect. That's what this tech will do. So the mm. I'll just wait is not a particularly great strategy if you think at some point in time you're going to jump in. So yeah, the takeaway for me is uh, do something or mm. be comfortable not doing something. That's, mm. the, that's the poke back that says, sure, if you're so clever, do nothing. Yeah. Let's see how that works out for you. <laughs> Excellent. Wise words. Thank you for listening. And thank you to my guests on this episode. If you found this episode interesting, please share it with your friends and rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast. I look forward to continuing the conversation on the stories that are shaping our future next month on Stories Create Me. Curious about how the power of narrative could work for you? Check out my business website, www.spendloveandlam.com. That's www.spendloveandlam.com.